0: Uh, Before we uh, come before uh, God's word, I I want to um, recognize special guests that are with us on the very back of this section. I'm already in trouble is uh, our former intern, Elizabeth Ingram Schindler, with her husband, uh, Stephen, and their family. Um, Elizabeth was an intern with us uh, a long time ago because I think I still had a little bit of hair. So that's how long it is. But we're very glad uh, uh, to have you and your family with us, Elizabeth. We remember you with greatness, uh, great fondness, of, and uh, we're excited. As we come before God's word, let us do so very likely, as Jesus and the disciples would have, which is to recite what He called the Great Commandment or the Shema. Would you follow after me? Shema Israel. Right Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad Hear, O Israel: The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning is um, as printed from uh, the letter of James, but I'm going to go back to chapter 3, verse 1. And we'll go through verse 6, and then we're going to skip and go to verses uh, 9 and 10 as James writes to the early church and this is what he says not many of you my brothers and sisters should desire to be teachers for we know that teachers will be judged more uh, strictly make sure i said that right got my cheat notes Uh, for all of us make mistakes and those who uh, make no mistakes are perfect and speaking. They have managed to control the whole body through a, bar- a bridle. In the same way, we, uh, by putting bits in horse's mouth, uh, control the uh, entire animal. And ships... Great and large so much that they have to be driven by strong winds are controlled by a tiny rudder so that the ship goes wherever the pilot wills. Now, the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great exploits. How large a forest can be set ablaze by a small fire and the tongue is a fire. And skipping a few verses, it says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, but with it, we curse those created in the likeness and image of our God and Father. How can blessing and curse come out of the same mouth? Brothers and sisters, it must not be so. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Two weeks ago, um, my wife and I were on a river cruise. And a river cruise is different than an ocean cruise. The ship is much smaller, but it's still a good-sized ship. Uh, it's a ship that's big enough to hold 180 uh Clients and room also for a crew of about 50. Well, one day when we were cruising down uh, the river uh, as as part of the educational process, uh, they showed us and uh, showed pictures of the wheelhouse, the place from which the captain steers the ship. And we were surprised to learn that that large ship is controlled by a, a joystick about this big. Just left. Right down Uh, we were amazed and that picture sort of stuck in my mind and then I thought about another picture that you and I have seen way too often recently and the picture is of untold acres of forest land on fire and then we hear that perhaps it was a campfire uh, that wasn't put out completely or maybe even a cigarette and in these pictures of a tiny joystick and a, and a tiny cigarette, uh, we see a, an image that uh, James could, correl- uh, could relate to. James would say the tongue in the same way is small. And it can do really positive things that guide and encourage, or it can do very negative things that destroy. James says the tongue is small, but it has, cap- it is capable of great Exploits. I remember the late Dallas Willard once said that churches should do conferences on how to bless people and not curse them with our words. Well, I've been in a conference all week, so I don't really want to give you another conference. Let's just try a sermon. And I think it's a significant sermon because we live in a day where words often seem to be used not to bless, but to curse Fifteen years ago, looking at the culture, uh, author Deborah Tannen looked at it uh, and she looked at the, the way we communicate in politics and the way we communicate in religion and the way uh, we communicate on talk shows, on the radio and TV and the way we communicate with each other interpersonally. And, and she labeled our culture, the argument culture. Well, that was more than 15 years ago, about the same time Professor Stephen Carter lamented the lack of civility. In our nation, I don't think things have gotten better in the last 15 years. In fact, they've perhaps even been taken to the next level of intensity in cursing others with our words. But the good news this morning is even though that has not gotten better, it's not particularly unusual for the Bible times. The Bible was very concerned about the use of words and the right use of words. The psalmist writes in Psalm 39 uh, that basically said, I set out not to uh, uh, misspeak with my words. And uh, Proverbs 10:31 praises a person who is able to just spew forth wisdom from their mouth and not things that are damaging. And you'll remember also in the Proverbs, it talks about how a word spoken at the right time can be very powerful. They were very concerned with words. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, there's pretty good evidence that one of the sources Jesus was referring to was not just the Older Testament, but also a book called The Ethics of the Fathers or a collection called The Ethics of the Fathers. And in that collection are a number of sayings about appropriate and inappropriate uses of our words. It was a big issue. In ancient Israel would have been a big issue in uh, Jesus' day. I, I don't know exactly um, the reason, be, but it seems to have started from the fact that um, though Jews in the beginning may not have lived in large urban areas, they lived together in, in tribes or what we might even think of as clans. And if you've ever been to a family reunion, you kind of get a picture of how this goes. And that is pretty soon everybody knows everything else, whether it's true or not. And so they took the spoken word quite seriously, and they uh, they were concerned about words that could be used to speak negatively to hurt another person. They even had a phrase for it in Hebrew. It was called Lashon Hara, the evil tongue. And the evil tongue basically consisted in hurting another person uh, with your words, and uh, specifically the big point was gossiping. Uh, saying things uh, that most likely not true, but at the very least not helpful about another person. And interestingly, you can watch the rabbis debate, um, uh, the evil tongue and gossip, and they were trying to decide which of the Ten Commandments is gossiping most likely to break. Is it stealing? Is it lying? Or is it murder? And they came up with this amazing theory that when you gossip about another person, that is like murder. Because if you're stealing from them, you can, you, you can give back to somebody what you've stolen generally. If you lie, you can go and correct it and speak the truth on the witness stand. But if you kill, you can't restore life. And what they argued is that when we gossip about another person and spread things that are probably not true, at the very least not helpful, we have, in a sense, killed their reputation and it's very difficult for them to get it back, so they compared it to murder. Some of you are old enough to remember Raymond Donovan. He had been um, a member of the administration uh, a few decades ago. Then he was um, uh, indicted for fraud, and a case was brought against him. And after this trial in New York City, uh, Donovan was found innocent. And you may recall his response was this in the press conference. After these charges were deemed uh, to be untrue, he looked in the ca- camera and said, To what government office do I go to get my reputation back? Well, you don't. And that's how gossip works. And that's why they said it was more like murder than even theft or bearing False witness. They also were so serious about it. They said, you know, three at least three people get hurt in the gossip. Uh, the first is the person who's gossiped about, obviously. The second is the person who listens because then they may have their views of the person who's gossiped about shaped in a negative way. And then, lastly, the person who actually does the gossip and spreads the gossip is harmed because after a while, nobody wants to be around a person like that. Nobody wants to receive information from that person. Anymore. Uh, the phrase that they used was, what happens with a gossiper is they strike in Damascus, but they kill in Rome because gossip can spread like a forest fire, and that's before email. And it just has this ability to take from a person's reputation. So they said... This was a use of an evil tongue. Uh, There's a wonderful story you may have heard about a a rabbi in a small village and 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 somebody in the village uh, falsely uh, accuses the rabbi of something that the rabbi didn't do. But he accused him of it. And then the accuser one day realized that, in fact, he was wrong, that the rabbi didn't do this. So he went to him and he said, Rabbi, will you forgive me? And the rabbi basically says, well, that depends. What? The rabbi said, I need you to do something. I need you to go home and get a feather pillow. So the person said, "Okay," and they came back and the rabbi said, I want you to go up on that hill and I want you to take that feather pillow. I want you to cut it open. And then he said, I want you to go pick up every single feather, no matter where it is, put it back in the pillow and bring it to me. And the guy protested and said, well, that's impossible. It's a windy day. There's just no telling where all the feathers will go. There's no telling. I can't trace every one of them down. And the rabbi said, exactly. And there's no way you'll be able to go back and all the words you spoke about me and go get every place that they went. So they took gossip quite seriously. They also took something else quite seriously. Maybe you weren't gossiping about someone. Maybe you were even speaking the truth, but you did it in a way that humiliated another person. And they had a phrase for this, in English we would call it whitening the face. In other words, someone is so shocked like the color just goes out and drains from their face because of what you said about them. And this is what the Talmud, which was a really like scripture for um, the Jews, said that you would be better off to throw yourself into a burning fire than to humiliate someone. And make the color go out of their face. And they took it quite seriously. One of the uh, greatest rabbis of the 20th century was a man named Abraham Joshua Heschel. He escaped Nazi Germany just in the nick of time, came over to Cincinnati and then later to New York. Um, became a very famous rabbi and very involved um, after the war in issues such as civil rights. And then later he was a frequent critic of uh, President Johnson's approach to uh, pressing uh, the war in Vietnam. But Heschel did it speaking the truth, but in a way that was not demeaning to the people with whom he was having the debate. Jews have an amazing ability to argue. I don't know if you've noticed this. It goes way back. They used to say, where there are two rabbis in a room, there's at least three opinions. Once I was doing a wedding with a rabbi, and we were, we were waiting out there, and the, uh, uh, Narthag's getting ready to walk in. So I just joked, and I said, you know, rabbi, I've heard this. Is, is this true? And he said, oh, there's at least that many opinions and maybe more. And they share them. But they're able to share them and share them with intensity and then walk away. As friends, I'm not saying that we don't speak the truth, but we learn how to do it in a way that is not gossip. And that is, does not involve humiliating another person. There's also, uh, the rabbis talked about a second level of uh, misuse of the tongue. Uh, they called it the dust of Lashon Hara. So it's like, and this is like a generation once removed. It's not real great, but it's not as bad as, uh, as gossip and humiliation. And some of the things were using your words to sort of instigate something, to sort of fire it up. So at family reunions, when I see my sister, I know there's a particular university and quarterback that she absolutely despises. So I'll say, hey, what's oh so-and-so doing? And that'll start and we'll, and we'll get into it. That, that's second generation. That's, that's dust. Uh, you have a friend who's extremely liberal. So you tell them of all the things you've learned on Fox News. That's dust of LaShawn. Hurrah. You go the second generation to try to incite are you are you hit forward on that email to somebody else that put that you know will just fire them up and get them off on a rampage. Another way we can misuse our words is to try to look better than we actually are. So one is to hurt others, the other is to unnecessarily puff up ourselves. So as I mentioned, I was at this conference, and, and on Thursday, um, uh, somebody was speaking at the conference, and when they finished, uh, the person next to me, a, um, a woman, a Presbyterian pastor from Houston, I, I did not know, but I just met her, turns to me and says, wow, he was really good. I've never heard of him. And so for some reason, I turn around, and, and rather than say, yeah, he was really good, or that was good, or something, I say, well, I had him in school. Really? What? Really, he's already announced that he's been doing this for 46 years. All that did was make me look old. But I was like, gonna like, try to score points with a person from Houston that I'll never see again. That's a dust of Lashon Hurrah. Do we really need to build ourselves up in that way? Uh, there's another uh, example that Rabbi Joseph Telushkin uses in a book on Jewish ethics. He said there's a wealthy man and his sister, and his sister's moved to town. So recently the families have been getting together, and they're both... Pretty large families with several kids and going to dinner. And so the wealthy brother always says, uh, you know, I'll pay. This is on me. Uh, but for the last couple of times, the sisters made a big fuss. No, no, it's on me. It's on me. And he said, no, it's on me. So after like several times in a row, she made a big fuss again. It's on me. He said, okay. She looked at the bill. She turned white. And she was furious for for her brother for, at her brother for putting her in that position. Because she never really intended to pay. She just wanted... To look magnanimous. Now, don't try that with me because I will make you pay. But um, so there are ways where we deceive, we can hurt others or we can try to deceive them build up ourselves. Well, if there are so many ways to hurt with the tongue, what, what do we do? Well, maybe the answer is we just need to learn to be silent. Earlier in this letter, James says, now everybody ought to be slow to speak. The rabbis used to say that silence is often the best medicine for the body. Maybe. I think of, again, the great Dallas Willard, who was a a very brilliant man, professor at the University of Southern California. He would teach graduate courses in philosophy. At the end of a class, one day, a student got up to ask a question, which really turned into a taunting of the professor and a critique of the professor. And it was wrong and it was out of bounds. And as he launched into this, Dallas Willard's response was, "Who's a very brilliant man. By the way, people that know Dallas Willard said, you never get into an argument with him as a philosopher because by the end of the argument, he might prove that you don't exist. (laughs) So at the end of the class, he goes in really an attack on the professor. And he's obviously off base to those uh, who are pretty bright. And Dallas Willard's response was just to nod. He said, you know, that probably seems like a good place to stop the class today and walks out and his his uh, teaching assistant says what are you doing you know first of all that he was wrong and second of all you know he was insulting you and he turned to the teaching assistant and he said i'm working hard on the discipline of not having to have the last word well maybe the silence is a good practice remember calvin coolidge from American history, Silent Cow. Uh, The story is told, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, one day a reporter said to President Coolidge, he said, I have a bet that I can get you to say more than two words. And Coolidge's response, you may recall, was, you lose. Is it that kind of silence that we need? Or is it possible that sometimes we actually lose in our silence? One of the stops that my wife and I made on our trip was to Nuremberg in Germany. And you may recall Nuremberg was the site of the Zeppelin field where Hitler had the, his great propaganda rallies. They could put more than 100,000 uh, soldiers and clubs and stuff on, uh, club members on the field as well as thousands and thousands more in the stands. And what they've done in Nuremberg this day is taken one of his own propaganda Uh, buildings that he had built that he intended to use for annual Nazi rallies and turned it into a museum that explores how could this happen? How could this happen? Well, I can't explain how it happened, but I know one of the things was that people who knew better, should have known better, were silent. And at, at least in this case, their silence didn't help. Is there something other than silence or cursing and fortunately, James tells us there is something else we can do with our tongues. We can bless. The rabbis used to have a phrase I'm sure James was familiar with. And, James, uh, and they said this, that often a quarrel between two people is like a fire. And you can either blow on it or you can spit on it. And they said if you blow on it, you fan it. If you spit on it, maybe you put it out. And so in a way, to put water on a quarrel is a way to positively use our tongue. But another way, I think, is what James called blessing, to lift up another person, to encourage another person. Uh, today, my son who's in seminary, uh, starts an internship at a church. And I can't help but think the church where I first started in North Carolina, uh, how important they were uh, to me. Because when I preached, I preached faster than I do today. You know, like 231 miles an hour. Uh, One time I preached a sermon while dribbling a basketball. And, And that was just the good stuff. But, you know, they would say, you're doing a great job. We really see a wonderful future for you. We can't wait to see what God will do with you. It's encouragement after encouragement. Their words could have easily been used to pick me apart. But they used to bless instead. You know, the Hebrews believed... Rightly so, if you look at the story of creation, that worlds are created with words. That new reality art is created with words. So, how do you create a new and positive reality for another person? You do it with your words, you speak blessing. Blessing was very important. You'll remember stories of uh, Isaac uh, with Esau. And Jacob and how important that blessing was and that they battled over it. And you may remember Joseph blessing all the sons. And even to this day, the fathers in Jewish families have special blessings now for their daughters. Uh, Blessings speak positively. They are a form of encouragement and they create, in many ways, a new reality for people. Just as if if we tell people they're stupid, they'll never get it right, they're hopeless, they should quit. That creates a different kind of reality for them, And so I would just give this suggestion to create a new reality. Uh, just a couple of things. One is I think you have to learn to look at people in your life with double vision. You can see them for, as they are for, for their faults, but you can also see what they yet may become, what they will grow into. The other thing, and I've learned this actually from a number of you, is when you uh, bless someone, when you encourage them, you're specific. I really liked that you. Or this helped me win you. I see this in you. And you name it specifically. And you create that new identity. You create a new destiny. Years ago, uh, as part of a hazing for new pastors in the Methodist Conference, I had to do district youth work. Which means I had to take uh, youth from different churches to, to district uh, events. And, and I remember one of them uh that uh, that we had 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 a really rough middle school year years in fact uh was doing very poorly early in high school uh they were thinking of dropping out they just couldn't seem to get it right they didn't seem to have uh, uh much enthusiasm for academics and then a few years later I'm catching up with another pastor, and we're talking about that person. And and the pastor says, you know, you remember so-and-so? And And I went, yeah, yeah, I do. I remember, you know, she went on a number of trips with us or whatever. And they said, do you know that she just graduated with her Ph.D. from this major university? And I said, you're kidding. I mean, I thought thought she was going to drop out of high school. And then I said to my friend, what do you think happened? And he said this. He said, well, somewhere along the way. A teacher must have gotten a hold of her and said, you know, you can do this. You're really smart. And, my friend said, she must have believed it. You can create a world with your words. Make it a world of blessing, not curse.